Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. So we've now moved on uh, from chapter 7. And even though we have only studied the first four verses of this chapter, I feel that after last week, we're fully engaged with what chapter 8 is going to talk about. As you know, a lot of what Paul has written thus far has to do with the law. And I stated, of course, this last week that the law was, believe it or not, mentioned 61 times in the first seven chapters. And from chapter 8, where we're at now, through the end of the book, which is nine chapters, it's only mentioned 10 times, okay? Now, my point in saying this is because Paul uh, has brought us, if you will, to, to somewhat of a close, uh, at least on the the major points of of the law. His final point being, as you know, what was the purpose of the law, right? Well, for me and you, what was the purpose of the moral law? And as you know, it was used by God, not just to show us what his righteous standards were, but also to let us see that we are incapable of of actually keeping all of those standards. In other words, that we would fail and we would recognize that we were sinners. And in all that discussion, Paul told us why it is that we sinned. And that is because you and I have this thing we call a sinful nature that uh, is living, is dwelling, is part of us, if you will. And as a matter of fact, he talked about in chapter 7 how it actually wages war within us. There's this battle going on inside of us. Well, at this point, we entered chapter 8 where Paul said, okay, so, so now that I have shared this with you, it's important that we all understand as believers, Jew and Gentile alike, that the holy standards of the law are still to be lived out, okay? God is immutable, right? God is unchanging, as you talked about last time. Um, He still wants us to be holy as he is holy, but we do that by and through the power of his Holy Spirit who indwells each and every one of us. Paul's actually going to mention the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, 19 times in this one chapter, chapter 8. And this is going to help us to understand um, sanctification. It'll help us to understand this calling for us to live a practical holiness, which, by the way, cannot happen without the empowering of the Spirit of God. So here in chapter 8, verse 2, we saw the first mentioning um, in this chapter of the Holy Spirit where Paul said, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Or you could say it, the, the, the spirit that gives life, if you want to phrase it that way, has set us free, has released us from the power of sin that, as you know, leads us to death, okay? Once again, in in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and I've said this before, but it's important. This is a good verse to memorize. It says that he saved us through the washing, right, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, okay? He gave us new birth, and he gave us 
new life, okay? Uh, he gave us a new birth positionally, right? We use the term John 3, we were born again, right? But he gave us a new life practically, okay? Only the Spirit of God, folks, can give us a spiritual life. He can only, only he can bring life to a spiritually dead person. There's no other way. Well, going into verse 3, being that Paul mentioned Jesus in verses 1 and verse 2, in verse 3, we were told that he did what the law was powerless to do. Okay, or if you will, what the law was powerless to do was done through Jesus Christ. As you've heard me say numerous times, and this is something that needs to always be shared, the law cannot save anyone. The law absolutely cannot sanctify anyone. If you're reading the Old Testament or if you're reading the New Testament, the law has never been salvific, meaning, meaning the law has never had saving capabilities, ever. It's never been able to save or sanctify any human being, okay? Now, what it does do, right, in showing us our sin, right, we talked about that, it does very well, right? It does a great job at showing us our sin. You cannot place your life side by side with the moral law of God and not recognize that you have failed miserably, all of us, okay? But that is where the work of the law ends. That's where it ends. What, what the law was powerless to do, as the verse states, is that it was powerless to save us. It was powerless to save us from sin's penalty. It couldn't do it. The law leaves us in our sin. The law leaves us with no way out. It proves to us, it shows us that we are sinful. We fall short of God's standards, but that's it. We're left there. And that's why he finishes that verse by saying, but God took care of that by sending his own son to be a sin offering for us. Okay, As Paul said in the book of Acts when he was on his missionary journeys, Acts 13 verse 39, he's talking to the Jews in the synagogues, which he did a lot. He says, through him, through Jesus... Everyone who believes is justified. Listen, he is justified from everything the law could not justify him from. That's about as clear as it gets, right? You can't be justified from the law, but you know what? Christ took care of that. That's where justification comes from. What the law could not do, Jesus did. Okay? And then ending in verse 4 last week, Paul said, and so he condemned sin in sinful man, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sin nature, but who live according to the Spirit. So we spoke about being justified earlier on in Romans. And it's kind of somewhat mentioned here as we were told that we're not saved through the law, right? We're saved through Jesus Christ. But now Paul is getting into what you and I call sanctification, okay? When he speaks of the righteousness of the law, and it is righteous, it is holy, it's perfect. When he speaks of that being fully met in us believers, okay, 
And then he tells us why. How does, he, how does he say that? He says, because we don't live according to the sinful nature. We live according to the Spirit. The believer in Christ, the new creation in Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, the new creation in Christ does not have a, quote, lifestyle in sin. He does not follow the ways of the world, but we do have a life that honors God, okay? How that happens is through us yielding our lives to the Spirit of God. Paul here, folks, is is making a clear distinction of those who live according to their sin nature and those who live according to the Spirit, okay? Matter of fact, he's going to go head first into that, and we'll start reading that right now. Read with me, picking up in verse 5. He says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So all four of these verses are somewhat similar. Okay? What Paul is doing, his goal, is to show once again that there is a contrast between those who are living by the Spirit and those who are living according to the flesh. Now, please bear in mind what was said there in verse 4. Whether he uses us or we, he's speaking of himself, of course, and the Christians in Rome. He says, we, Paul and them, believers, we do not live according to the sin nature. Okay? He says the same thing at the very beginning of verse 9. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature. Why do I read these verses to you? Because starting in verse 4, and even going beyond what we're going to talk about today, Paul is, is making a distinction between what I would simply call a lifestyle a lifestyle, lifestyle in sin versus a lifestyle in the Spirit. And, and, and I'm trying to be explicit when saying those, those words um, because in verses 5 through 8, okay, the four verses of our text this morning, there are seven verbs, okay? Verbs are important in the Greek language, by the way. There are seven verbs, six of them, Six of them are in the present tense, okay? As you know by now, I hope, the present tense simply means it is continual. It is habitual, okay? Hence the word lifestyle, okay? It's very important that we understand that, okay? When you see a word like live, he's not saying uh, live like this on Sunday morning, The word live is in the present tense. Continually, always be habitually living. It's a lifestyle. It's lifelong. You see, that's what those words mean. 
So in the present tense, which six of those verbs are in, is saying this is continual. This is ongoing. Okay? So the text here is not, is not Paul saying, you know, Christians sometimes can have a bad day and not submit to God. Christians can respond incorrectly, maybe to an argument at work. Or, or Christians sometimes are hostile towards God. He's not saying that. I'm not saying that can't be true. He's not saying that, though. The distinction is living continually, habitually, is living in the sin nature and living according to the Spirit. Thus, the contrast is either between the believer and the non-believer, or, if you will, before Christ and after Christ. Okay? Now, folks, I bring, I bring this up because these verses, okay, and, and other verses like them are sometimes misused and, if not abused, by certain believers, okay? Look at verse 5 again. He said, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set. The words live and mindset, present tense. Ongoing, all the time. What is it set on? What their nature desires, what their sinful nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So once again, I just always want to hammer this home, living according to the, the sinful nature and having their minds set on the sinful nature is continual in the Greek. Okay? This is what the non-believer does. On the flip side, though, what does he say? As it pertains to the church in Rome, and really no different than it does to you and me today, he says, we live, we set our minds on what the Spirit desires. This is what the Christian continually, or how the Christian continually desires, strives to live. This is his pursuit. This is our pursuit. Okay? Does that mean that we never sin? Well, of course not. That would go completely against what Paul talked about earlier on in chapter 7. But, but as a lifestyle, we are bent towards, we are focused on, we have a life that is by the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. I say it that way, folks, because the Spirit of God will not, the Spirit of God will never lead us outside of the Word of God. They're like that. That never, ever, ever changes. Okay? Now, here is the problem that I have, and I take this opportunity to do it since it's part of the text this morning. Here is the problem that I have with many Christians and some commentators, okay? And this is a great place just to kind of stop for a minute and let me vent, would you? Here is a short blurb from a commentator. He says, The words, those who live according to the sin nature or the flesh, in some of your translations, the words, those who living according to the sin nature or the flesh, refers to the period before the believer's conversion 
And in this context, those in the flesh are unregenerate, or they're not born again. And those in the spirit are regenerate. Rock solid, I'm with you the whole way so far. But then he says, on the other hand, other be- uh, only believers walk according to the Spirit. That's true. Only believers have the Spirit. But then he says, both believers and unbelievers may walk, live according to the flesh. I told you what those words mean. I even gave you the tense. It's important because that word walk is a continual walk. It's a habitual walk. It's a lifestyle walk. But he says, well, both believers and non-believers can do that. He's saying the non-believer can only live one way. That's true. But the believer can go either way. That is problematic. You may have heard of the phrase, for those God justifies, he also sanctifies. Anybody hear that? It's very true. Many times you've heard me say over the years, this is the same thing, there's no such thing as an unchanged Christian. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. We may all be on different roads, but we're all in the same pursuit. We may all be at different places in life, but we are being sanctified. Now, many times, this is my response when I say, well, you know, there's no such thing as an unchanged Christian. And many times, uh, that's my response to those who believe in what they call the carnal Christian. Have you ever heard that, those words? A few of you, yeah, heads are shaking. You're a little lazy, no hands going up, but that's okay. The carnal Christian. Even an old pastor friend of mine in California uh, told me years ago, he says, both the Christian and the, quote, carnal Christian are saved. The difference is that one person's life has changed and the other has not. They still live in and like the world. This is what he told me. Even worse, folks, they get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's hear the pages turning. Victor, that's why I told you to get another Bible. I can't hear you pushing buttons. I'm going to have to take Victor's phone from him. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. For some reason, this is always the proof text that I get. So he says this. Brothers, Paul says to the church in Corinth, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And indeed, you're, you're still not ready. Listen to this. You are still worldly. He, he even defines what he's saying. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Folks, Paul here is calling them out for their actions, as he should, okay? As he should. He says they were acting towards something. They were responding to a situation in an incorrect, unchristian-like manner, okay? How do we know that? Because he tells us. He says, look it, 
I know there's jealousy. I know there is quarreling among you. Okay. Okay. How do you go from that to this label, the carnal Christian? Because they define the carnal Christian as a lifelong believer who has a lifelong pattern of sin. I don't, I don't get that from anywhere in those verses. I get that there's something going on where people aren't responding correctly. And unfortunately, all of us here in this room have probably done something similar to that. We've all failed and maybe we've got mad or been out of shape or gossiped or, or, or maybe become defensive. We've all done stupid things. But that doesn't turn into this creative person called the carnal Christian. As I said, can a Christian sometimes act in a worldly fashion? Yes. But we do not live our lives in carnality. Okay? That doesn't, that doesn't fly right. This is why I prefaced my earlier part by speaking of a, quote, lifestyle, because this is what Paul's talking about. This is based on the verb tense that Paul himself used. I mean, you know, it's worthless to look at those things if they don't mean anything, right? Once again, he's not saying have a, you know, have a good day. He's saying have a good life. This is a lifestyle. It's continual. I want you to do this all the time. When he says, for example, be filled with the Spirit, he's not saying do that tomorrow at noon. He's not saying make sure you're that way before you go to church on Sunday morning. He's saying be being filled. Always be filled. Continually be filled. That's what that means. Make sense? That's, that's the point. Listen, folks, we've all known Christians, including ourselves, who failed. We've all known Christians who have done stupid things. Let's, we all know that. They got out of fellowship, maybe. Maybe became lackadaisical in reading scriptures. Maybe they got sucked into something and found their way out of God's will. But the true Christian will always, always, always find their way home because the Spirit of God lives in them. We'll see that in chapter, or chapter here in chapter 8, verse 9. The Spirit of God lives in every believer. It doesn't live in the non-believer, but in every believer, he's there. Okay? Now, if you find this person saying, well, you know what? This... This life that I'm now living, I, I kind of like it. I, I like it a whole lot more than this Christian life, right? I, I love doing all these things. I, 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 th I think I'm going to stay there. I really, I, I'm kind of, I don't want to do this Christian lifestyle thing anymore. If you run into that person and they have no desire to repent whatsoever, do not say, well, I know, Darren, that, that they've been in this lifestyle for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, but I know they're a Christian. I saw them shed a tear. I saw them shed a tear all those years ago when, during the altar call. I know they're a Christian. Maybe they walked forward during youth, youth camp. Therefore, I know I saw him walk the aisle. You don't know Jack. Where in Scripture is that the guaranteed golden ticket to heaven? 
Walk an aisle, boom, automatically. Guaranteed 100% salvation. You don't know that man's or that woman's heart. Especially, folks, when you know there is an evidence of no salvation. There's a lifestyle of no salvation. There's a hunger and a desire for the things of this world. And that's how they live. Listen to the cut and dry teaching of 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet... We walk, there's that word again, walk, live. If we have a consistent pattern of, okay? If we claim to have fellowship with him, but yet we walk in darkness, you know what John says? We lie and we do not practice the truth. He simply says, if you claim to be a Christian, but you don't live like it, John says, the Word of God says, you are a liar. I didn't write it, folks. I'm just reading it to you. And here's the terrible response that we hear, I know I've heard, from millions, millions of Christians. Yeah, but Darren, that's how it starts. When you start a sentence with, yeah, but, what typically happens, not all the time, but what typically happens is they have a story to tell you. And that story is somehow in their minds going to override what Scripture just told them. Because they don't like what the Scripture had to say. Even though the verse is crystal clear, and there are many more like it in First John. Dave knows this, he taught it. There are many more like this. They say they've known Christians in the past. People that they, they, they grew up with. People they went to high school with. Whose life never gave evidence of being born again. But who were they to, make any, to go against what they, what they say? Who are we to say that they're not believers? Wait a minute. You just said they've never lived a life that ever even closely resembled a believer in Christ? And then you have the gall to say, but who am I to say they're not a believer? Well, on the authority of the Word of God, you can say a lot. Your own human judgment, nobody cares. So there's not a shred of evidence in their lives that they're believers. They have never been faithful to God and they have no desire to do it. They have no desire to be faithful to God. But because they say that they're Christians, that means it's true and that means that somehow this verse and others like it must be incorrect. Somehow we are interpreting Scripture wrong because someone claims to be a Christian. In other words, that's all it takes. If you say you're a Christian, you obviously are. 1 John 3, 6. No one, hence the word no one, lives 
No one who lives in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has ever seen him or even known him. He's talking about a pattern, a lifestyle pattern. Because we will all, quote, continue to sin. I, 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 I would love to say we've all sinned our last time. That would be great. But there's a good chance that's not going to be the case. But he's talking about a pattern, a lifestyle of sin. So here, here we have, folks, the same principle. You cannot live in a lifestyle of sin having it be impossible to tell the difference between you and an unbeliever. It's impossible. You're like twins. And to somehow be born again, to somehow be what God called a new creation in Christ. What's that term worth? I am new creation in Christ if I'm not new. If I'm just the same old guy with a Paint a, you know, coat of paint on me. It's worthless. Listen to me, folks. Many Christians are failing their family members. Many Christians are failing their friends by not sharing the gospel with these people. And they're giving them a false hope of heaven because there's never been any fruit in their lives. They just accept them as Christians and never share Christ. Never go against that. There's no evidence at any time they've been born again, ever. There's never been any fruit in their life. You're failing them by just saying, well, they said they were a Christian, so? Are you willing to let that go? You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. But are we willing to let that go and not to share Christ, not to challenge that salvation, not to share the scriptures with them because what they say they are? Are you okay with those folks going to hell because you simply said, well, you know, I... they say they're Christians. Over my many years as a believer, I've heard people say, well, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised who's there. Huh? When we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised who's there. You know, my response is, and I will say this openly and boldly to anybody, no, we're going to be surprised who isn't. Who isn't. Why are only the big mouths like me willing to say that? I'll take the heat. I don't care. You can hate me. You can not come here anymore. That's fine. But I'm going to stand before God saying, but I told them. <laughs> I'm not here to be everybody's friend. I'm here to tell you the truth. That's it. How do you think the words cheap grace... How do you think the words easy believism came to be? From stuff like that, from people like that. That's where it came from. And listen, folks, listen to me. That's not new. This isn't something that's new. Turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Go to... Uh, Go to verse 13. We're there. 
This is the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you ever heard that term, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says here, Jesus is talking, and he's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, okay? He says, enter through the narrow gate. He says, for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to what, everybody? Destruction. And how many people enter through it, everybody? Let's hear it again. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Many. Notice that word, many. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life. How many find that? A few. A few. Folks, I don't think it is a coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences, by the way. I don't believe it's a coincidence that Jesus himself uses the word many and few. Okay? Do you not understand that many people on the broad road that leads to destruction, they think they're on the road to heaven. Do you understand that? To them, that super wide, broad road, carry all your baggage, live the way you want to live, to them it has a flashing neon light that says heaven this way. But it says they're on the broad road that leads to destruction. Look at verse 21. He says, you know what? Not everyone who says, you've heard me say this before, not everyone who says to me, right? Not everyone that gives you mouth service, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? He's saying a lot of people will say, Lord, Lord, but they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he say? But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Did you guys catch all that? He says that you can say, you can claim, Lord, Lord, he says, all you want. Okay? But Jesus says, only the one who does the will of my Father will be in heaven. And by the way, this is the one who lives by the Spirit back in Romans. Okay? Based on our text in Romans, I'm pretty sure you cannot live according to the sinful nature and have that work out for you. It's pretty clear. Matter of fact, the very next verses here in Matthew tell us, verses 21 and 22, people will try, though. They will try. Look, what does he say? Verse 22, many... Well, look at that. There's that, ver- there's that word again that Jesus continues to use. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and, and in your name drive out demons and, and perform many miracles? Because now they're, they're kind of being defensive. What do you mean not everyone's going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Lord, didn't I do all these things? I will turn to them plainly and said, I never knew you. You who practice Hence the word. You see that word? Practice, you evildoers. So here they are. They're at the end of the broad road. They have reached the end of the broad road, right? They have now come to their destination. 
These people were religious, right? These people were religious. We see that in the text. They claimed to be Christians. They even called Jesus Lord. But they were a part of the many. Jesus says, I don't know you. He just said in verse 21, those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do live out, practice the will of my Father. Matter of fact, listen to how Luke records this very same verse in Luke 6.46. Jesus puts it this way. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's kind of in your face. That'd be in your face to any of us here. Why are you calling me Lord, and you do not do what I say. Listen, folks, this is not talking about a works-based salvation. There is no such thing. He's speaking on a perceived salvation that did not produce any works, if you will. Folks, even you and me, we, are, we have finite minds, okay, <laughs> Even you, you and me with finite minds, we understand that a supposed fruit tree that does not bear any fruit isn't a good tree. We get that. This is why in our text back in Romans it says it's because they can't. They can't bear that fruit. Matter of fact, verse 7 back in Romans says they are hostile towards God. Once again, present tense, continually hostile, always being hostile. Verse 8 says, it's impossible for them. They cannot please God, it says. Folks, when you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't please God. This is why I'm talking about he's showing a contrast between the unbeliever and the believer. This is not a believer who lives in ongoing sin and is addicted to his sin nature. The carnal Christian, that's baloney. All right, I'm going to step back off my soapbox. <sighs> Take a deep breath. Go back to Romans, if you would, please. It's hard to go through a text when you know how people misuse the text. And so you kind of got to go both sides. You want to explain the text, but you want to say, this is baloney. And this is a big deal in, in our world today. And I think it's important that we listen to words like many and few. It's funny, Dave mentioned this morning, Revelation mentions the size of heaven. It's not that big, if you will, right? I mean, per se. After all these years, thousands and thousands of years of believers, that's the, only, that's the biggest we get. That reminds me of the few and the many. According to the world we live in today, holy smokes, 90% of, of people on this planet, or at least in, in our country, 75% claim to be born-again believers, evangelical. Really? I, I, I'm, I'm going to say that's probably 5%. That's my opinion. It's just my opinion. I haven't asked every person that. If everybody thinks they're saved, boy, the Lord really messed up. He, he, he cut us short in heaven, right? We're going to be on top of each other. But that's not the case, obviously. All right, back in Romans. Second half of verse five. 
But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, they have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Listen, folks, true believers are concerned about the things of God. That is their focus. That is their desire. Now, according to Paul in chapter 7, we are going to have spiritual failures, right? There are going to be times when we desire to honor God. We go into this wanting and desiring and planning on doing the right thing, but somehow we still fail. The good news in Paul's statement there in chapter 7 is that he says he has a desire to do what is good. He wants to please God. He he says he delights in the law of God. And then like the rest of us, we just sometimes miss the mark. And this is what's important to me, folks. I would rather see a person... Fail God, get back up, pursue God. Fail, get back up, pursue God. Fail, get back. And then somebody says, nah. Because you, just, you still have the desire. You still love God. You want to live this life. You want to honor him. Yep, you fall short. Get back up and go. And the person who says, I'm just not even going to do that. You know, nah. Because you have a desire. You want to. You want to live for God. You want to honor God. But because God's Spirit is in us, we do not want to please the Lord because of God's Spirit within us. We do want to please the Lord. That was a misquote there, wasn't it? We do want to please the Lord. We we do want to fulfill His Word. So yes, yes, we, we will fail. But because... Once again, we are new creations. Those aren't my words. That's the Bible's words. We are a new creation in Christ. For the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We get back up and we pursue what Paul says, the things of the Spirit. And this is basically what Paul is saying next in verse 6. He says the mind, that's really better translated the mindset, The mindset, verse 6, of the sinful man is death, but the mind that is controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. That that word mind or mindset, it, it means the tendency. It means the inclination of the mind. Okay, So here in the first part of the verse, That inclination is towards sin. That inclination is toward the sin nature. Okay? This is why Vincent, in his word studies, just simply says it's to be carnally minded. Kenneth Weiss, in his Greek translation, says it is to have a mind that is dominated by the flesh. Now, in the second half of this verse, I'm not going to go through the words again, same words Same meanings. Except here you have the mind that is inclined or dominated by the Spirit of God. Listen, folks, it's kind of like genders. There are only two. Okay? Get it? There are only two. Here in this text, you either have your mind on the flesh 
And which, by the way, Philippians 3.19 says, your destiny is destruction, your God is your stomach, and your glory is in your shame. Or the other side is your mind is on the things of the Spirit. You have a desire, as Paul says, and even though sometimes you fail, your desire is there, your hunger is there, you love the law of God, you love those morality, the principles, the very righteous standard that God gives to us. You love that. You pursue that. You're concerned about godly things. So just like in Galatians chapter 5, the sin nature and the indwelling spirit are in conflict. Right? Go ahead. You know, turn back there. I got nothing but time, right? Until Joanne yells at me. She wouldn't do that, would she, Walt? <laughs> well, you got to protect me. In Galatians 5, look at the verses um, starting in verse 19. So he, he kind of makes it clear how these two lifestyles are, are completely opposing one another. Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. So it makes it clear, here are the acts of the sinful nature, right? So you don't have to argue about what it means. Here are the acts of the sinful nature. Here are the desires. Here's what you're thinking about, focused on. What does he say? Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's a list. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, but I claim to be a Christian. What do you mean? Now look at what he says. Here is the opposing. Here is what happens when somebody walks in the Spirit. Okay? Here are the acts of the faithful believer who's living by the Spirit. We all know it as the fruit, right? We know it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Wow, those are very much opposing one another, aren't they? Those are two completely different lives and lifestyles. Not even on the same continent. They're so different. Back to Romans Verse 6, once again, like with the word lifestyles, you have two choices. One coincides with the sinful nature and the unredeemed. And he says that is death, Paul says. And the other corresponds with the believer who is driven by the things of the Spirit. And he says that is life and peace. Now, it's interesting here, how Paul phrases this in verse 6. Even though we know that sin leads to death, we know that, okay? We know that walking in the Spirit leads to eternal life, but that's not how he uses the words here. He uses them in the present, okay? The one who has his mind set on the flesh, this is the unredeemed, he doesn't say leads to death, he says is death. He is, that is death. In other words, he is cut off from God. He is separated from God. 
he is already spiritually dead. As Paul said himself in Ephesians 2, as well as in Colossians 2, before Christ, we were all dead in our sins. That's it, period. Isaiah, talking about Israel in chapter 59, verse 2, he says, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden my face from you so that he will not hear. See? MacArthur says, the unsaved person is a spiritual corpse and consequently is completely unable within himself to respond to the things of God unless the Holy Spirit intervenes by convicting him of sin and enabling him to respond to God by faith and thus being made alive, the unsaved person is insensitive to the things of God. And if you know this, that should remind you of 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because he is spiritually discerned. The things of God are foolishness to the man who does not have the Spirit of God. But for the believer, the one who has his mind, Paul says, that is controlled by the Spirit, Paul says, is life and is peace. Folks, me and you enjoy spiritual life from God. Though we're not perfect, back in verse 2, he said the spirit of life, which means the spirit that gives life, right? He set us free from the law of sin and death. He set us free from that. Folks, I don't know about you, but I can tell you right now, uh, my mind today, my thoughts today, the way that I live my life is diametrically opposed to the person I was before Christ. It is completely different. I do not think the same. I do not even focus on the same. God has changed my mind, my heart, my life, my thoughts There's only one way we can get a life like that. Just one. And that's from the Spirit of God. Rebirth and renewal, right? Washing by the Holy Spirit. A life that honors God or has the desire to honor God who saved us. That life, Paul says, brings peace. Oh yeah, there's always that sin nature that you battle with. But when you're focused on the Lord, you're focused on the Spirit of God and you want to honor Him in all that you do, that's a life of peace. That's a life of comfort. That's a life where you know where you're going, which is nice. You know your final destiny. But it's a life that we can live in Christ by the Spirit today that we were never capable of living before. I know that personally because I had no desire to do it People would ask me the question, why do you live like that? You know my answer was? Because I like it. I like it. I liked sin. It, it gave me a rush. The more I do it, the worse it was. 
God changes that through his Holy Spirit. And we're called to live like that. Gee, I'd love to go to verses 7 and 8, but that's not going to happen today. So we're going to, uh, um, somebody's going to yell at me in probably just a minute. So um, uh, we're going to pick that up next week. Um, uh, because it'll be a little shorter, I'd love to be able to share communion. So hopefully we'll be able to do that uh, next week as well. So let's pray, everybody. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we know that in life, even amongst Christians, there are disagreements, there are arguments. But Lord, we thank you that we have your word to go back to. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the honesty to say, what does the scripture say? Sometimes, Lord, as believers, our hopes is what we want. And we, we allow our hope, we allow our feelings, we allow our emotions to change the truth of scripture. Nobody in this room, Lord, wants their best friend, their mom, their dad, brother, sister. No one wants them or wants to think they're not saved. But, Lord, your word is clear to us. Who you justify, you sanctify. You have never saved anybody that you have not began and continue to change. And, Lord, we are grateful for that. We love that. We just don't like it when we think of our, our friend who has never been changed, but yet claims the faith. Lord, help us to be faithful, to not just walk by what they claim, but Lord, to be faithful to you and to share the gospel with them, to do our best in a loving way to share with them what scripture says, because we don't want people to have a false hope. The last thing, and I believe the worst words any human being can ever have on this planet are to come at the end of the road and to say, Lord, Lord, thinking I'm there, Lord, here I am, and he say, I have no idea who you are. Those have got to be the saddest words in the history of man. Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to understand the repercussions of that. Help us to do our best, to be faithful, to share otherwise. We pray this in Jesus' name.